Well, hi everyone. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Happy to see you all on this really warm Thursday night um, to talk about the chapter, A Vision for You. And even just those words, a vision for you, like they had a vision of what our future could be like if we work this program. So let's see what that was. Um, page 151 of the big book. They start out by telling us what drinking or big eating fests means to normal people, conviviality, companionship, colorful imagination, release from care, boredom, and worry. Well, I'm not normal. So it really wasn't those things. It may have started out that way, um, but we crave that release. And at first, overeating gave it to us. And what do we want release from? Care, boredom, and worry. Well, I need to be okay with sometimes there being cares in this life, meaning things that are hard. Um, the other day, I got a call from one relative inferring that another relative may have done something criminal. And I just thought, okay, at first I'm, you know, my heart's pounding. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then it's like, you know what? There's nothing I can do about it right now. And I gave it over to God. Um, we, we have to learn how to release our cares. And these steps teach us how to do that. Boredom. If I'm bored, it means I am not focused on other people. I'm only focused on myself and how I'm not getting the entertainment that I think life owes me. And worry, well, worry means I'm thinking of my future without God in it. So we need to find other ways to deal with these things. And again, thank God this program teaches me how. And it says what happens as we get deeper into the binging and insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure, right? A yearning to enjoy life as we once did. Um, we have to find a new way to enjoy life, but that's okay. This program gives us that also. And look at these words, a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable me to eat what I want and not gain weight. And they say one more attempt and one more failure, not two more, because we always tell ourselves, this is the last time. If it doesn't work this time, I'll start over tomorrow. But this is my last one. Who of us says, I'm going to binge two more times and then start? We always say, I'm going to binge tonight and I'll start tomorrow. And what do they say? They say, this is a delusion, right? One more attempt, one more failure. Back in chapter three, they call this a delusion, an insane thought that this time I'll be able to eat what I want and get away with it or binge one more time and start tomorrow. And then it tells us what happened. It's really sad. It says we become subjects of king alcohol or for us, maybe queen food, shivering denizens of their mad realm and the chilling vapor that is loneliness settles down. 
Bill Wilson talks about this in his story, right? He says, alcohol was my master. See, we think that we're in charge. We don't want to surrender to God because we don't want to give up control. But the truth is, we were never in control. If we're addicts, either the food is in control or God is in control. Unfortunately, there's no door number three for us. Actually, I shouldn't say unfortunately. It seems unfortunate at the time, but what we learn is that um, the way God manages things is way better than I could have done it. So there's only two doors and hopefully we choose the correct one. But they continue on. They want to hit home how awful this is. They say the four horsemen that we face in the illness, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, the awful awakening. And look at that. We can have a spiritual awakening where we come to know God and care about others, or we can have the awful awakening when we're filled with terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. They tell us, bottom of page 151, okay, sometimes someone has the alcohol down or the food down, and they say, I'm fine. But deep down, they're thinking, gosh, I would do anything to be able to have one, I don't know, one scoop of ice cream, um, one drink, one whatever, and get away with it. And it says, if we're like that, if we're constantly thinking, I wish I could have one and get away with it then we're dry and not sober. We're not happy about our sobriety. And then it says, we will know loneliness as few do because we're not blotting it out with the food anymore, but nor we feeling, feeling okay with ourselves. And they say, well, okay, fine. You know, you, you hear this belligerent dry alcoholic saying, fine, I'm willing. But am I going to be condemned to a life where I'm going to be stupid, boring, and glum like righteous people I know? Yeah, okay, I must get along without liquor or food. But how can I? Is there a sufficient substitute? And they say, yes. And it is vastly more than sufficient. It's the fellowship. For us, a fellowship in Overeaters Anonymous. A fellowship. And what happens? It says, there you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. The three things that plagued us, the fellowship. Now, the fellowship isn't the solution, right? If I just hang around everyone, I'm going to feel better. But you guys can't rewire my heart. You can't give me a spiritual experience. You can give me correct information and love me enough to help guide me along the way. And that's what, that's what we need. No one is meant to do this in a vacuum. Unfortunately, some people may have to alone somewhere, but we're lucky we don't have to. And even if we live in a really rural place, now with Zoom, we at least have digital connection with each other. And they tell us, now they give us some gorgeous promises. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Now think, the original founders of this program were all um, pretty old. There weren't any 20-somethings in that group. And still, they say, even if you're retired, 
the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. And then the question is, well, how? How am I going to find these people? It says, you're going to meet these new friends in your own community. That's why I'm so big on local fellowship. Yes, these Zoom meetings are great. Super happy that you're all here. But if at all possible to go to like a local in-person meeting um, once a week, it's a great thing. Local fellowship. If my car breaks down, um, I know that Kathy loves me, but she's in Virginia. She's not going to be, well, she actually might volunteer to <laughs> drive seven hours to get me. But um, my friend Cynthia, who lives two towns away, she'll come and get me. So it tells us um, near us, alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. That's us in the illness. What, in a sinking ship, you know you're in trouble but you can't rescue yourself. You need to be rescued. And that's in its essence, what this program is about. We realize we are on a sinking ship and we're willing to get in the lifeboat. We're willing to go in that lifeboat. Imagine someone on a sinking ship and there's a lifeboat and they ask the driver of the lifeboat, where are you taking me? Are you gonna go North or South? guarantee that people in the Titanic didn't say that to the lifeboat drivers. It's just, I'm desperate, rescue me. And that's what we do with God. It's like, God, there's no way what you can do with my life will be anything worse than what I'm doing to my own life. So I'm going to get in your lifeboat. And when we do, we find that God takes us to places beyond our, our dreams, right? Page 100 says to us, the things that come to us when we put ourselves in God's hands are better than anything we could have planned. So that's what they're offering us. So they say, you may think you're in a sinking ship, get in the lifeboat of these 12 steps, and you're going to make great friends, not because you're all drowning on the Titanic together, but because you all got rescued together, maybe some ahead of, of the others, but all rescued and are now going out and rescuing others. And on page 153, it says, you will know what it means to give of yourself, self-sacrifice, that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. That's part of our mission statement, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And how do we learn that? By studying? No by giving of ourselves to help other people survive. So it says, okay, this may seem like mind boggling, incredible that these people who are so ill become happy, respected and useful again. Like how can we, you know? And it says two things. You have to wish them above all else. So, and be willing to make use of our experience, want what we have and willing to go to any lengths to get it. And then what do we get? It says, we are sure it will come. What will come? The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. The age of miracles, because again, at its essence, this program is not about meetings or phone calls or food plans. It is about a miracle, a miracle. God 
breaking out of heaven into earth, into a human heart and changing it, changing the soil of our souls so that the illness of compulsive eating can't live there anymore. That's what this program is about in its essence, miracles. Um, so then they talk about how it got started. They said, okay, maybe we'll inspire you by telling you how, what someone else did. So they talk about this guy named Bill, Bill W. So he gets better, um, but he's not, he hasn't been better a long time. Page 154 tells us he was in another town. Business deal totally failed. And in fact, it ended up in a lawsuit. So he knew he was going to court. Um, there were hard feelings, controversy. He was discouraged, away from home, reputation shot, almost broke, physically weak, and sober only a few months. That sounds pretty bad, right? He's all alone in a strange place with like no money and a lawsuit. That sounds horrible. So what does he do, right? He's a newly recovered alcoholic. He's lonely as can be. So he walks down by where the bar is, right? That's like the normal thing to do. And then he says the way that we all say when we say, I'll just have one bite, one piece, one scoop, and then stop. He says, I'll just go in the bar. I won't have a drink. I'll just get a bottle of ginger ale and sit there and start hanging out and talking with people. I've been sober six months. I can do that. And then he realized, uh-uh, I can't do that. Remember Bill Wilson, as soon as he got sober, he was in the hospital. So he was sober, I don't know, like five minutes, five hours. And he said, the thought came. He already surrendered to God. And then God started directing his thoughts. So what happened then? He didn't go to the bar. He walked down the lobby to a church directory. You know, in a hotel, there was like a church directory. And so it's interesting because he walked from the bar to the church directory. We can't just run from food. We have to be running toward something, an enhanced relationship with God, service to others. We need to be going toward so here he is, he's going toward and he's battling in himself. You know, what about my family? But I'm lonely. What do I do? And he decides, thank God, or none of us might be here tonight. His sanity returned and he thanked God. Always gratitude. When we are, the fact that we are able to stay abstinent, the fact that we are able to make a right decision, we thank God. And so what does he do? He selects a church and he calls. Um, and if you're here on Monday, I'm going to be doing Dr. Bob and the good old timers and get really in depth about the meeting between Bill and Bob. It's some fascinating, beautiful history with a lot of good spiritual lessons. But for now, um, we'll just let it say that he, he says his call led him presently to a certain resident of the town. So again, it wasn't the first call. So when people say, well, I tried to make an outreach call, but no one was there. He made six calls before someone answered the phone. He didn't give up because he knew his life depended on it. And 
that's when he got in touch with Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob was a guy who had studied spiritual stuff for over two years and still couldn't stop drinking. It says, painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic, which is why he didn't recover, even though he was spiritual. He didn't understand it. So he agreed that no amount of willpower could stop his drinking. And he said, I agree. We're on page 155. A spiritual experience is necessary, but the price is too high. Well, what price was too high? So for him, he said, I, I've, I'll lose the remainder of my business if I let people know I have trouble with alcohol. And he said, I would do anything but that. And I think we all have to look at our but that's because they are what get us in trouble. I will do anything but that. So we have to be willing to do all our but that's anyway. And so what happened to Dr. Bob? Again, Monday, we'll go into it in detail, and it's a fascinating and beautiful story. But for now, it says he started doing some work with Bill, and then he went on a roaring bender. The obsession returned full force. And he said, for him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw he would have to face his problems squarely that God might give him mastery. So what did he do? One morning, he just went out and knocked on the doors of all those people he'd been afraid to tell he was an alcoholic. And it says he trembled. I mean, that's great fear. So when people say, well, uh, I don't want to make phone calls because they make me uncomfortable. Remember, the founder of this program trembled as he went about because it might mean ruin. Like he might be totally out of business, but he knew he had to. He had to do this so that God might give him mastery. He had willingness, which was backed up by action. I have a quote here in the margins. Your feet show what you believe, not what you say, but how we act. And at midnight, he came home. So he left in the morning and he didn't get home till midnight. So he was out more than 12 hours doing what he needed to do. He was exhausted, but happy and hadn't had a drink since. June 10th, 1935, Dr. Bob's first day of real sobriety and our anniversary of our fellowship. Um, and they said, okay, so there they were. They said, but this isn't enough. We have to do more. And they said, both saw they must keep spiritually active which translated into helping others. So one day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital and asked if she had a first-class alcoholic there. And she said, yep, this guy's just beating up a couple nurses. I guess that qualifies, right? He goes off his head completely when he's drinking. He's been here eight times. It's a lawyer and we've got him strapped down. Okay, who was this nurse? And Denise sent me this this week, um, a little reading on her and just a little tribute how, again, just an ordinary person who started out with 
a lot of struggles could end up helping so many people. Sister Mary Ignatia was a music teacher for 21 years, but at age 39, she suffered a nervous breakdown and decided to leave teaching. So she wasn't a saint at the time, right? She had a nervous breakdown. She was a normal human being, just like us. In 1928, she was assigned as a registration clerk in the admissions office of the Sisters of Charity New Hospital in Akron, Ohio. Here at St. Thomas Hospital, she met Dr. Bob, a recovering alcoholic who co-founded AA. The two soon became friends. Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson, another recovering alcoholic, had just published a book outlining the 12 steps of spiritual healing for alcoholics. But in order for this healing to occur, he needed to find a hospital willing to provide care for the alcoholic's medical needs. In the summer of 1939, he asked Sister Ignatia for help in finding a hospital where alcoholics could detox as they learned to live without alcohol. It was a risky request because alcoholism was seen as a character defect rather than a disease requiring treatment. But Sister Ignatia wouldn't be deterred. She admitted alcoholic men into the hospital during shift changes and before nursing supervisors could object. Eventually, Dr. Smith and the nun convinced hospital officials to change their policy. St. Thomas Hospital became the first religious institution to recognize alcoholics' rights to receive medical treatment. When alcoholic patients left the hospital, Sister Ignatia would give them a Sacred Heart medallion representing their commitment to God. If they were going to drink, she'd say, they should return the medal first. Um, I don't know if this woman in the hospital was Sister Ignatia. As I'm reading, I'm thinking, oh, Donna, it was? Because you're nodding. Oh, okay, it was. So I'm not sure. But I just thought that story was beautiful. Here was a woman who was broken. She get, goes to work and decides to just help others. And if not for her, AA number three might not have been in the hospital and then AA number four. But here's AA number three. It says he was a prospect, but none too promising. The use of spiritual principles like wasn't really known. So what did they do? They said, put him in a private room, we'll be down. And two days later, they stared at him and came to help him. Now, I know this two days later is sometimes used by people to justify telling newcomers, go get two days, then come talk to me. But see what they did. They said, put him in a private room where he got care, where he got treatment. They didn't say, send him home, tell him to not drink for two days, and then we'll talk to him. They helped him. They didn't leave him alone. Um, if I'm powerless over food and you tell me, go home and don't binge for two days, well, I just admitted I'm powerless. How am I going to not binge for two days? Tell me how to access power right away. So here they are. Here he is. And, and also two days, sometimes for someone who's a bad alcoholic like this, it may take two days until he can understand what anyone's saying to him. He's literally got to get defogged. That general, I won't say 100% of the time, because there may be cases where it's like that for a compulsive eater, but generally not. 
generally, if someone isn't eating right now, they can be worked with. Um, if any of you've heard my story, I was shoving bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door before a meeting. At that meeting, I fessed up. I took the toughest sponsor I knew and started. And that was my last binge. He didn't say to me, like, wait two days and then call me. Because if that happened, I might have been one of those people saying, I've been coming around for 40 some odd years and I still can't get better. So, um, so there he is and they're talking to him and they say, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. And it's like, it's no use. Nothing can fix me. I'm afraid to get out the door and I can't understand it. So sad. Here's someone who really wants to get better, but he just says, I'm afraid to even go out the door. And it says they spent an hour talking about their experience to get him to say, that's me, that's me. I drink like that. He was hopeless. And they spent time setting up an identification. That's the first thing they did. That's the first thing Bill did with Dr. Bob. He didn't go in there and start preaching. He set up an identification, how he used to drink. Um, and so the guy's like, that's me, that's me. But now from what you tell me, I know more than ever, I can't stop. And then Bill and Dr. Bob started laughing because they probably thought, yes, now we can help him. And so then only after the guy admitted he was hopeless, they talked about their spiritual experience and the course of action, faith and works, trusting and relying on God, cleaning house and helping others. And he says, I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn I've never touched, I'll never touch another drop. But by nine o'clock, I'd be boiled as an owl. I'm assuming boiled as an owl means drunk. So what did the guy do? He prayed and swore he'd never touch another drop. So what did he do? He's basically begging, right? God help me and swearing he won't do it again, which means he thought he had power. So begging and swearing based on my own power, but what he didn't do was surrender. He didn't say, God, whatever you want with my drinking life, with my marriage, with my job, with my income taxes, I'm yours, I'll do whatever you want. And they came back to him and he was thinking about it. And he said, God ought to be able to do anything. And he gave his life to the care and direction of his creator, his care. He trusted that God would take care of him and his direction. He was willing to take direction and said he was willing to do anything necessary. Sometimes um, when people aren't willing to do whatever's necessary, it's because they're not as hopeless as this guy. And so we try to talk to them about it, but truly if people aren't hopeless, not saying they have to be locked up in a hospital, but to really feel I am powerless and my life is unmanageable, generally until we feel that we're not willing to do whatever God wants. Because again, that means like, I can't cheat on my income taxes anymore. I can't tell lies. You know, I have to, if, I, if I'm going to the mall, and someone else is going and it's crowded and there's one parking spot, 
I got to give them the parking spot and drive around another 15 minutes. I have to live a new way of life. I have to say I'm sorry when I do things wrong. Um, I have to take out the trash. I do not like taking out the trash. And it's like my husband's chore. But I do it because I need to keep growing spiritually. Um, so he says he left and he was a free man. He says he had found God and in finding God, he had found himself. And I just want to read Bill Wilson gives a description of this guy on page 188. Um, this guy's story is called Alcoholics Anonymous number three. And I just, I thought it was beautiful. So I just figured I would read it. Um, so he's reminiscing. Bill Wilson is saying, 19 years ago, Dr. Bob and I saw him, Bill D, for the first time. Um, Dr. Bob had said to me, if we're going to stay sober, we had better get busy. Straight away, Bob called Akron City Hospital and asked for the nurse on the receiving ward. He explained he had a man for... He and a man from New York, that's how he referred to Bill Wilson, the man from New York, had a cure for alcoholism. Did she have an alcoholic customer? Knowing Bob, she jokingly replied, well, doctor, I suppose you've already tried it on yourself. Yes, she did have a customer. Um, and Dr. Bob said, put him in a private room. We'll be down as soon as he clears up. Um, and... Bill D said, well, this is wonderful for you, but not me. My case is so terrible. I'm scared to go out of this hospital at all. You don't have to sell me religion either. I still believe in God, but I guess he doesn't believe much in me. How sad. Then Dr. Bob said, well, Bill, maybe you'll feel better tomorrow. Wouldn't you like to see us again? Sure I would, replied Bill D. Maybe it won't do any good, but I'd like to see you both. Looking in later, Bill Wilson says he saw Bill D with his wife, Henrietta, and he, they, he, Bill D pointed at Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson saying, these are the fellows I told you about. These are the ones who understand. See, people have to know we understand. And then Bill D related how he had lain awake nearly all night. Down in the pit of his depression, new hope had somehow been born. The thought flashed through his mind. If they can do it, I can do it. Over and over, he said this to himself. Finally, out of his hope, there burst conviction. Now he was sure. Then came a great joy. At length, peace stole over him and he slept. Before our visit was over, Bill D suddenly turned to his wife and said, go fetch my clothes, dear. We're going to get up and get out of here. Bill D walked out of that hospital, a free man, never to drink again. This is their vision for us. This is what they want us to be part of, right? You know, we talk about here how God launches search and rescue missions for addicts. He wants us to be part of those search and rescue missions. He wants us to experience. Can you imagine how Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob felt? I mean, 19 years later, Bill Wilson is remembering that story with crystal clear detail. That's what they want for us. So go back um, and they talk about now, there's three of them. And bottom of page 158, they said, okay, we got to find another one. So they found 
a fourth one um, on page 159. He's saying, yeah, the way you three guys put the spiritual stuff makes sense. I'm ready to do business. And that was it. So here it is. They keep working with others. And it says, page 159, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober, that motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. So it became secondary, right? Um, we start out and, okay, sometimes we don't want to do it. It's a little scary. We don't want to be inconvenienced. Um, we we want to be able to sleep more, to watch Netflix more. Um, but there's a change as God rewires our hearts and we start wanting to help people. We start really caring about helping people. And it says they were they shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers, not a few spare minutes here and there. Um, and then I think, what am I giving up? You know, sometimes I bristle that I have to give up a little sleep, a little bit of spare time when I just want to sit and read a book. But this is what we do. And it does give us great joy. So a year and a half later, they'd succeeded with seven more people. That's not very good odds in 18 months, only seven people. But that's God's business. However many people I work with who get better, Sometimes I'll work with people and they all like in a row, it's like better, better, better. And then I'll work with people and they drop out, drop out, drop out. Um, that's okay. That's God's business. My job is to carry the message. It's God's job to work in people's hearts. So I don't count my success by how many people have I gotten through the steps in X amount of time. I count it by how obedient am I to God? That's it. So it tells um, how they're constantly thinking how they might present their discovery to some newcomer. Um, and they say there, there are meetings all the time, the prime object to bring a time and a place where new people might bring their problems. So that's why Melissa and I decided that always at the end of this meeting, we'll take questions. We don't want anyone to leave feeling shaky, that they don't know what to do, that they're going to go out and binge. You know, we take questions. Um, and it says, what were they doing? They were just still figuring out how to help people. Um, page 160 talks about how a good meeting should be. A practical approach to problems, right? It's just very practical. Do what you can to find God, clean house, help others. Do God's will as best you know. Um, the absence of intolerance. No one's better than anyone else. The informality, right? We don't have to wear business suits here. Informal. We're casual here. Genuine democracy. No one's better than anyone else. And again, this is a workshop, not a meeting. So which is why Melissa or I monopolize most of the meeting because it's a, a workshop. But at meetings, she and I are always just one among many. Um, uncanny understanding. And it says, this is irresistible. So this is how we can be attractive and irresistible to others. I'd say the most important is understanding, that people feel understood, that people feel 
cared about. They said, when people go to meetings like this, page 161, they leave there knowing they have a host of new friends. It seemed they had known these strangers always. They had seen miracles, right? Of Miracles of recovery. That's how Bill Wilson described Ebby when he came to visit him. Here sat a miracle directly across my kitchen table. They had seen miracles and one was to come to them. They were going to recover too. They had visioned the great reality, capital G, capital R, God, their loving and all-powerful creator. And I have a note in the margin here. When we see the great reality, the mosquitoes of life don't bother us so much. Someone cut me off in traffic. So what? God's removed my food obsession. I have a great sense of purpose. Who cares if, you know, now I'm I get there two minutes later. It's like, who cares about so many little things that used to be important? And they go ahead and they tell us that this will just grow. Um, inevitably, if we live this way, people will be attracted to us. And they say no one is too discredited or has sunk too low. So it doesn't matter if you haven't been able to stop binging. I couldn't stop binging for almost seven years until I got abstinent. Um, I had sunk pretty low. It says no one has is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business. Now, if someone doesn't mean business, they're still welcome cordially to meetings, always. But it doesn't mean that I'm supposed to sponsor them. We sponsor people who mean business, who say, I'm beat, I will do anything it takes. And it says, um, Social distinctions, petty rivalries, jealousy, these are laughed away. Being wrecked in the same vessel, right? All in the Titanic together. Being restored. God has restored us, put us back together, um, united under one God with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others. That's what we have to think of. The things which matter so much to some people no longer signify much. How could they? When I attune to the welfare of others, God can come in and rewire my heart and change me. So they go on and they talk about um, this happens all over the place. People go into a hospital and they talk about a specific hospital, probably the same one. And it says, many of us have felt for the first time the presence and power of God within its walls. We are greatly indebted to the doctor in attendance there, for although it might prejudice his own work, has told us of his belief in ours, self-sacrifice, honesty. Even if sometimes it may cause me to be inconvenienced, it's okay. Um, and they tell us, thus we grow. That's how this fellowship grows. And it says, and so can you, though you be but one man with this book in your hand. We believe in hope. It contains all you will need to begin. Um, I had this book in my hand. I had three sponsees. I said, let's get on a Zoom meeting Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, we all have, that may not be your role to you know, start a workshop, but if you are surrendered to God, he has a role for you that involves helping other people. 
And it says, we know what you're thinking. You are saying to yourself, I'm jittery and alone. I couldn't do that. It says, ah, but you can. You forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself, right? It's like a, it's like we dug for gold or oil. We've got something much greater than ourselves. You know, we are attached to God. We have an inflow of God's power. And if God is unlimited power and love, and I've tapped that, that means I get an infusion of power and love that's beyond mine. And it says to duplicate it, we need three things, willingness, willing to go to any length and patience, because I'm not going to turn into Mother Teresa overnight and labor, willing to do the work because this is work. Um, so to page 164, it says, when a few men in a city have discovered the joy of helping others to face life again, there will be no stopping until everyone in that town has had the opportunity to recover if he can and will. Right. That's what it should be that everyone in our sphere can see that we're recovered and gets an opportunity. And they say, okay, but you know, you guys are all like the people who wrote this big book and you're all going to be dead by the time I'm reading this book. And they say, your real reliance must always be on God and he will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. I crave fellowship with people who have this illness and are recovering from it and are on fire for God or who want to be on fire for God and passionate about it. I crave it like I crave water. Um, and it tells us, Okay, our book is meant to be suggestive only. Suggested doesn't mean it's optional to do what's in this book if we want this. We realize we know only a little. I think that's false. I actually think they knew quite a lot. Um, God will constantly disclose more to you and us. Then it tells us what to do every morning. Ask him, meaning pray, in your morning meditation, what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. So I'm supposed to be praying for that. And it says the answers will come if your own house is in order. So I can't be praying, dear God, help me to be useful while I'm like cheating on my income tax or lying at work or being mean to people in my family. It won't work. It won't work. There's no magic formula. It won't work. Um, God won't come in if we're not, putting our own house in order. And it says, obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. Got. I love that word transmit. It's not just like tell about something. Transmit. It's like you transmit energy. A telephone transmits sound waves. There's more than just the conveying of information. There's the transmission of love, of power that we do with each other. Um, see to it that your relationship with him is right. And that's the condition for this. Your relationship with God is right. How do we make it right? Submission to God's will as best we know it. And then great events, miracles will come to pass for you and countless others. Not just for, so it's telling me for me, I'm gonna have miracles. Yay, I needed one. 
Um, but it says mere great events, more than one, more than just recovering. We get so much more for us and so many others. This is the great fact. They're saying, give God a blank check. Abandon yourself to God as you understand him. Admit your faults to God and to your fellows, right? It's easy for me to just tell God alone, but for me to tell someone else, that's really embarrassing. And that's how we grow in humility. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely so we never charge money for this. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. So even though they're dead and I'm not, we're in the same fellowship of the spirit, meaning God. We're like knit together in God. And you will surely meet some of us if you trudge the road of happy destiny. And then they end with a prayer. May God bless you and keep you until then. It's like there's going to be this great, you know, anonymous fellowship convention of the spirit that they're talking about. And may God bless us and keep us safe. And that's all I got with that. I pass. Thank you.